You're listening to I Am Here. So hello, Quinn. Thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing? Thanks for having me, Tess. I'm doing very, very well, thank you. How are you? I'm really well. So, Quinn, you are the host of Swallows of the South. So tell me a little bit about you and about Swallows, and and then we can get into talking about your foray into tabletop gaming. Perfect. Absolutely. So my name's Quinn Wilson, and I am a San Diego-based grad student as of or I will be, about a month from the time of this recording. I was also at one point very deeply involved in the improv scene in San Diego, but I've since sort of distanced myself from that. But that's where a lot of the seeds of my show came from. Swallows of the South is an exalted third edition actual play podcast that I host with San Diego locals, many of whom have formal experience in performance. The initial cast I started off with was almost all other improvisers that I was working with. The composition has changed to the point that I wouldn't really say anymore that the selling point is that we are trained performers in the show, but instead the show has an explicit focus on providing both a cast and a story that centers on marginalized people up until... This most recent season, season four, the entire run of the show, basically, all of our recurring cast members were either people of color, queer folks, women, people who just are not very well represented in a lot of the gaming community. And in this fourth season, we added John from the System Mastery podcast, who is the first straight white guy to take a long running place in the show. So Swallows is really about telling deeply emotional narratives about empowering marginalized folks and deconstructing toxic systems of power. And there's a surprising amount of humor to be found in the margins of it. I love that. That is a wonderful introduction of your show. I have not listened to your most recent season um, because I'm never caught up on any of my podcasts. That is what it means to be a podcaster. Yes, exactly. But I have listened to much of it. And and it's like the reason I wanted to, uh, apart from you being a really great person in our interactions online, uh, it's one of the major reasons why I wanted to have you on to talk about about tabletop gaming with a group who is so underrepresented in this community and kind of touch on what it means to see representation elsewhere, what it means to you being the representation uh, that perhaps you didn't see. And I guess like what, what drove you to tabletop and how you see yourself in tabletop gaming, I guess, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, I know I just threw a lot at you. No, absolutely. I will sort of try to unpack it one by one. Um, and I should start with what drew me to tabletop. My older brother brought me into gaming when I was about 10 years old, 9 or 10. I'm the middle child in a family of seven. And 
only the oldest and the youngest among us are are straight. So everyone else is LGBT in some fashion. So I've always existed in a space where gaming spaces and specifically queer spaces had some form of overlap. And gaming was something that after my brother moved away when I was about 12, I used as a way to sort of keep a connection to him in some way. He left me with all of his books. It felt like a way to connect to my brother, and a lot of that happened through gaming with my siblings and also my siblings' friends. So most of the gaming groups in the very early, very messy, 12-year-old Quinn sort of space was gaming mostly with ladies. So a lot of my formative tabletop experiences revolved around queer folk and women and i did some time playing with a lot of uh white guys later down the line just like small groups of people but i stepped away from gaming for a while probably i wasn't actively in a game for about five years between the ages of 16 and 21 oh, wow. and about the time fifth edition D came out i sort of decided to dip my toe in you know, it was a new thing, it seemed accessible, and there was a tabletop club at my university, and in that group that I wound up running a campaign for for about a year, there was only one straight white guy that was a member of the group. Like, I live in San Diego, and San Diego's a very racially diverse and well-integrated city, so uh, especially on a university campus, it's really actually more of an active effort to find yourself a member of a gaming group that is just straight white guys. Interesting. And in my limited experience with sort of dominant gaming spaces, I talked about this a little bit on our question and answers episode at the end of our third season. There is literally no one, or that at the time that that was recorded on the cast, who felt comfortable going into gaming stores, including myself. The space that is actively dominated by a lot of straight white folks can feel very intimidating and hostile, and I have the privilege of passing, unless I do something that makes me actively read as being queer to other folks, but that's something that, for the most part, people don't necessarily actively pick up about me, and those spaces still make me super anxious and uncomfortable, so... I've been really, really lucky that that's not been the sort of place that I've needed to go to engage with gaming over the course of my life, because that's just not the community that I have more or less lucked my way into. Right. And that discomfort and that um, that kind of negative space that that does exist. And and unfortunately, you know, we we hear so many stories of it existing uh, in places like gaming stores, it always overjoys me when I hear stories of people who had such positive introductions to tabletop gaming, because the people who have the worst stories, I find, are individuals who went to gaming stores with a hope of it being what it can be. And so your story of playing with your siblings and your introduction to tabletop being surrounded by women and queer folk is 
a really, I think, unique experience, especially, uh, especially at the age that you were when you were introduced, because I think that's, that's something that I personally would like to see in the future. And I'm seeing it from other podcasters and other people in the RPG community and even people I know personally in my, like, in real life. Well, online is still real life, but you know what I mean? My, like, in-person connections of individuals who are trying to make gaming accessible to younger groups and making it accessible to marginalized groups at those formative ages. Because I think for a lot of us, it either wasn't or it was not seen as as something that could be fun or normal or not weird, you know? Absolutely. And this is a place where I will pull in my area of scholastic training and the graduate degree I'm pursuing. I see this a lot when I talk to people about therapy as well, where that first exposure that people have tends to be very, very important. And sometimes when people have that first exposure to a therapist, it really, really doesn't work out. And there's really, really not a goodness of fit. And that can turn people off for their whole life. They can just never want to interact with that again because they had such a bad experience. And I see that all over the place with gaming as well. And that really, really sucks. <laughs> it it does. I've heard stories from people who are well known in the in the community who've talked about trying to get a friend into it, into tabletop gaming, who had such a negative experience that it took them years to get that person interested again, or they still haven't had success in convincing an individual to try out tabletop gaming because of perhaps one really negative experience. Absolutely. And to be frank, I can't really blame those people necessarily because based on a lot of the stories that I hear, it can be genuinely traumatizing. And I really wish that it weren't. And I know even for people for whom their introduction was not traumatizing, you know, tabletop games aren't going to be for everyone. But I think that they can help provide this space for both self-exploration and this sort of group affirmation that can be really, really valuable for things like self-esteem or just stress relief. And it makes me sad when people who could benefit from that are in some capacity turned away or forced out of the space. It's miserable. Right. And to use your example of therapy, I think that when you make yourself vulnerable, which can happen at a gaming table, especially you know when you are looking at self-discovery and self-exploration, in a sense, you you are trusting it to be a safe place to be able to be vulnerable and perhaps explore aspects of yourself that you maybe didn't feel or don't feel safe exploring outside of that space. And if if that experience is is not a positive and supportive one, then you're scared to make yourself vulnerable like that and you shut down and you don't want to then you're scared of going there because why would you make yourself vulnerable again in a space where you got burned? Absolutely. And I think your point about vulnerability is really, really good. You know, I think that most great groups 
and most great games thrive on some level of vulnerability. And that doesn't necessarily mean sort of laying out all of your emotional history on the table. It can. If anyone has listened to Swallows, it's a very, very emotionally intense show. There's a lot of vulnerability that's required. But also, it's an incredibly vulnerable thing to sit at a table and say, this is the kind of thing that I think is cool. And to expect the people that you're with to pick that up and run with it and to validate that and to say, yeah, that is cool, and not instead to flatly shut you down or call you slurs or whatever for really sort of putting yourself out there in as much as saying, this is something I genuinely think is interesting and worthwhile. I think that you're right about that. That exploration is not necessarily about being emotionally vulnerable, but just, you know, perhaps saying, this is why I want to do this. So I'll I'll, I'll give an kind of a real life example. I'm playing um, in a fifth edition campaign. We just started a new campaign. And, you know, I sat down with my group of friends and I said, hey, I want to play a non-binary character because I interact all the time with individuals online who are non-binary and I have some really bad habits that I want to get rid of and I'm not necessarily the best at language. And one of my friends uh, has a sibling who is non-binary and so was really understanding. And I was like, you know, so I'm going to make mistakes. I want to play a non-binary character so that I get better at language. I have bad habits of saying, hey, guys, when guys isn't like it's a binary term. So my exploration of that was more for my own practice in a safe space so that when I'm interacting with non-binary people in real life, I'm familiar with the language and I'm used to the language. And then I can feel uh, more confident that I'm not going to make those mistakes. And so that was me opening up being vulnerable by saying, hey, I don't want to be ignorant. And I know that I have blind spots, so I want help. (laughs) And here's a way that I think I can do it. And my group was amazing, and they are amazing. And they've been really great at remembering to use non-binary terms for my character. And they've been really great at even helping remind me, because I'm because I'm a cis woman and I'm playing a character who is not cis, I still unconsciously have said, oh, she. And then one of my friends has been like, you mean they? I'm like, yes, they. That's they. I'm using non-binary terms. And I think that when when you look at these groups, you can have, you can be vulnerable. You can be vulnerable in terms of like, I want to explore an aspect of me, but you can also be vulnerable in, hey, I need your help with X, Y, or Z. (laughs) Absolutely. There's so many ways to be able to play and explore and be better. And the table provides such a wonderful space for that. And like you said, it, it makes me sad when people don't get that opportunity when they're at a table or when they sit down to a table that doesn't provide that kind of safe space. Absolutely. And so I guess I can start on some level addressing your question about representation in my podcast, 
Yes. And some of that was initially I was just very, very lucky in the group of players that I was able to sit down with. And it was actually very strange looking at the first traditional season of the show, Rogaris and River Pirates. I'm playing with two women and one man, two people of color, and the entire primary cast, the three characters that were featured in that season, were all straight white men, which was something that I actually had to take a lot of time to stop and consider the implications of the way that the intended narrative worked out. I'll give credit to Exalted for actively putting forward a world in which straight whiteness isn't necessarily the default. A lot of it is that that game is specifically looking at non-Western fantasy and mythological traditions in informing the setting. And I'll say that all of the characters were white men. Ariston, who was played by Alex, is gay. But we didn't necessarily start the game knowing that 100%. So that's still a male-dominated group likely interacting with a lot of people of color, a lot of women, a lot of queer folk. And the last thing that I wanted to do was set out to tell this story and in the end have it be this story about this group of three white boys who went and just, you know, essentially beat up a bunch of queer women of color because that does not send the right message at all. But I will also say that everything that I've done in the show is on some level informed by the fact that I am like a cis white man and I've done a lot of reading in anthropology. I really, really like world and culture building. I really like looking at the religious traditions that inform the material that we're using, but I can't guarantee that I have not or am not at times being appropriative. I really do my best not to do that. But I actively try to maintain an open door policy with both the people at my table and with the listeners of the show where if I mess up, it is very, very important to me that people point that out because I don't want to cause unintended harm in the stories that we're telling. And the composition of the cast has changed over time. We have a different group of characters, so it's not a group of white men at this point. But the biggest thing that I have tried to do, in addition to really being lucky with the people that I have in my gaming community that I am able to interact with and the people that I was performing improv with, is whenever I introduce a character or whenever I introduce an element of the setting to try to interrogate beforehand, like, what is my first instinct? And if that instinct defaults to whiteness or maleness or straightness or even sort of the western fantasy tradition asking myself why i'm having that instinct and if anything would be improved or changed by not following that sort of base instinct that can be very very easy to let yourself fall into in developing the story and developing the sessions and developing sort of the ongoing process of play Right. And and I, I think that with Swallows of the South, you can, I think you really portray that well. Like you, I am cis and white. <laughs> so I I also always question my first thought. 
I've I've seen a quote that has gone around on and off in in social media about how the first thought that goes through your mind is what you have been conditioned to think via society and what you think next actually defines who you are. And there's a lot of debate about that quote, but but I think that at least in this instance it it accurately reflects what you're trying to do is, you know, if your first, if your first thought is that conditioned societal belief of white, you know, the whiteness and, and being uh, a man and the societal patriarchal class power structure, you're recognizing when those thoughts occur and you're saying, how do I come at this from the other perspective or from another perspective? How do I evaluate this? How do I, how do I go through it, or how do I represent it differently? And that's really important. And and I I really appreciate you being honest about how you how that process looks to you because the problem is when we take that first thought that is is that conditioned societal thought and we don't reevaluate it. And I think that that's really good practice to do that even at the table because that I think likely has allowed you to be able to do that quickly in any life situation. <laughs> Absolutely. And I am inclined to agree with that quote that you're talking about in this context where there's a lot of ways that culture impact the ways that we default to thinking about things and it impacts the way that that sort of first first blush thought has especially when you're someone who has a relatively high amount of privilege and it has been helpful in developing higher levels of consideration or reflexivity in my broader life where it forces you to ask certain questions or it makes it easier to adapt when you realize, oh, geez, that was silly of me and like that was definitely coming from a place of privilege or what have you. and. I will say that my experience has been immeasurably improved and assisted by the fact that I am able to play with such a large and diverse group of players, and that is something that sometimes makes me feel uncomfortable when talking about representation in the space as a whole. I have certainly done effort to try to make sure that I am reaching out to and collaborating with folks who have marginalized identities. But I also feel like because of the situation I'm in, I don't have to do as much work as some other folks might. And I certainly don't want to present our show as being like the right way or this sort of inflexible model for what that is supposed to look like because everyone's experience is different. And that I think is a strength of the show is this is showing what one group of people having an experience with both a playgroup and a setting that is diversity forward can provide you, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it is the only or the winning formula, which is a part of why I try to remain very open, like I said, to feedback and criticism when I make mistakes. I obviously work with the people at the table to make sure that they are comfortable, but I also care a lot about the listeners. I I hope on some level that people who listen to the show who maybe haven't had a chance to play a game or who were turned away from gaming from some sort of 
uncomfortable or traumatic or just garbage experience in gaming at another point, we'll see that the default group isn't necessarily the entirety of the gaming experience. Yeah, I I care a lot about diversity, but I also recognize that I have so much privilege that I am in no way an authority on the subject, and that the best thing you can do with your privilege is actively extend your hand to people who don't have as much privilege to you and try to invite them to a seat at your table and understand that maybe if they say no, that doesn't mean that they aren't interested in gaming, but they might have they might have their needs met in other ways uh, or with other groups, maybe who are like all women or all people of color or what have you, because those groups do exist. Right. And I feel like the podcasting space has on one level helped to open up and make those people visible, but also because of the way nerd culture works and the way that internet culture works, it also makes it really, really easy for there to be a preponderance of shows that are straight white male dominated and that might make it feel on some level uncomfortable for other folks to start projects because they've had bad experiences when they've interacted with other parts of the community. Right. And I, I can't say that with definitive certainty. Again, I'm cis and white and male, but yeah. I think you make a really great point on several, well, you make several really great points. With experience, you saying that you're keeping an open table and the diversity and inclusivity that is demonstrated at your table isn't isn't the model that has to occur. It is a model and it is representative and I think that it does a wonderful job of showing, you know, that regardless of who you are, you can play. But experience is experience is different from person to person. And just in the same way that my experience with sexism as a woman, being a privileged white woman is very different than the kinds of sexism like a woman of color might experience because I, I do have that level of privilege. And I can never understand what their experience is like, but I can be a compassionate and I can be an empathetic human and try to understand and extend that hand the the way that you're talking about. Because with with this podcast, I also have to recognize my privilege. What I'm trying to do is I want to provide a platform where I can hear other people's stories and where I can help bring awareness to marginalized groups in the tabletop uh, gaming community. But I, I find myself constantly having to, to check myself and make sure that what I'm doing is not going to be seen as or is going to be interpreted as white knighting because there's that aspect of like you can you can be a good ally and the best way to be an ally is to help boost the voices of the marginalized groups it's not to speak for them and it's not to shout out for them it's to extend your hand in in the way that you're doing with your podcast and it it is a powerful thing and it can be 
such a powerful tool for us to be here and and helping each other and helping helping boost each other's signals and and you're right there's that part of saying maybe maybe I'm not what this person needs and that's okay maybe what they need is something a little bit different you know I I love listening to all women groups of players because I've never had the chance to play with all women. So I adore listening to all women because I've never got to do that. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think that you're absolutely right. And I think that in what you just said, you, you expressed what I was fumbling around trying to say much better than I think that I did, which is, yeah, I certainly don't want this. Um, I don't want my show to be white knighting. I don't want it to be, oh, look, Quinn has such an enlightened understanding of, like, other people and cultures. Look at him and his merry band of, like, these people who are lucky to get to express themselves. I certainly don't want that to be the read people take on what I do, because I feel like the show is at its best when I am able to just get out of the way. When I am able to sit back or step back and let the people that I'm playing with do their thing genuinely and earnestly. And yeah, it's sometimes <laughs> difficult to talk about because of privilege, just the balance between this is something that matters to me and I want to expand the space, but also I don't want to sit here like patting myself on the back. Or, right. like, imagining that I am, like, I'm responsible for these people enjoying gaming, and they never would have if I wasn't here. Like, I, I don't want to do that sort of horrible, like, Christ complex stuff, because it's gross. Right. <laughs> um, it's really gross. It It is. And uh, I relate to you so hard on this, Quinn, because, like, it, it has been, like, my... My journey into creating this podcast, all of my ideas, before I even started interviewing people, I was like, what are the reasons I'm doing this? And like, when I, when I look inside, like, why am I doing this? Like, and, and before I was interviewing people, I was like, I need to, I need to continue to look inside while I'm interviewing and, and reflect on why I'm doing it and making sure that it's not about me because I'm, adoring all these conversations I'm having and I want to hear people's stories. But the reason that I'm I'm creating the podcast as RPG Casts presents is because RPG Casts started about highlighting women. And then as I grew, it grew and morphed into representing and bringing awareness to underrepresented groups in tabletop gaming. And this seemed like a natural step forward from the website to um, to add to it in in a different way and to get the word out. But but it is I I feel you on that not wanting to be seen as like and not just wanting to be seen, but not wanting to be and to feel like oh good job me I I boosted this person I'm going to take the credit for for them enjoying what they're enjoying or for them doing the thing that they're doing or for them creating the thing they're creating because th that is that that white knight gross complex <laughs> absolutely and i will say basically anytime i wind up on a show talking about this sort of thing 
that if I engage in that sort of behavior or if that is something that comes across in the way that I talk about things, please mercilessly dunk on me. I deserve it because that's not what I should be doing. Like, take me to task. (laughs) But I mean, here's the thing. I think because you're an individual who does reflect on that, I think that if you do make mistakes, they're not intentional. They're not they're not addressed in a gross defensive way because of the fact that you're able to look inside like that. You know that you're going to be able to address it in in a positive and learning way. I think that when we make mistakes, being called out on those mistakes is so important. I love being called out on my mistakes because I know that they come from a place of likely ignorance and privilege. And I didn't know that. Um, so just yesterday yesterday just yesterday uh grayson from heroes not included talked about the terms um females uh versus women and how mm. using the term women is being a better ally of trans folks because female is actually a biological term not a like it's a sex term not a gender term mm-hmm. and it's better to use the term women when you're talking about women. <laughs> right. And I was like, oh my gosh, I didn't I didn't know that. I didn't realize that. Uh so I went through the entire RPG cast's website and like changed every instance of female I could find to women because I was like, I never intended to have that language being an exclusive language. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that's the kind of, you know, privileged ignorance that I have being cis and never having to experience the term female in a dehumanizing way. Right. Absolutely. And I want to speak to what I had said a little bit before about you maybe like you as a general term. Yeah. (laughs) Might not be the fit or someone might be having their needs met in a way that is not directly visible to you. And that doesn't mean that those groups don't exist. I I think that it was Tanya DePass certainly posted about it. I think she might have written this piece, but I'm not entirely sure that it was her about those sort of spaces for black women in gaming, where black women have been gaming for ages. It's not like a new thing. It's not like they need to be brought into the fold. Those games are just happening in spaces that might not be visible to other folks because it should come as no surprise to a lot of people listening that a lot of broader gamer culture is super toxic. Right. That's a wonderful point to make. Just because I don't know about this group or that I don't know about a certain space doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. Uh, again, I'll, I I can only use my own experience. It is I've never had the space of being able to be in an all women game. Mm-hmm. So I have sought out all women podcasts to listen to sometimes because it fills the need that I'm not getting. And I think that if we look for these spaces, they can be found. You know, I've had friends who the more I tweeted about all women groups were like, I didn't even realize there were all women groups. <laughs> right. And it's like, yeah, of course there are. Why wouldn't there be? You game with me and you're a guy. Like, I'm a girl who plays. So 
why wouldn't there be girls who want to play with girls? And you know, this one guy friend of mine was like, well, yeah, duh. <laughs> like mm-hmm. when you say it out loud, it makes sense, but it just like, <laughs> right. <laughs> and I do like what you say though, about just because you're not what that person needs doesn't mean that what they need isn't there. Right. And bringing a project out to an audience specifically and with myself making an active consideration toward diversity on a lot of levels of the show, like I said, I don't think that we are the perfect or inviolate example of how that works. What I want to do is contribute to a framework or to a patchwork in the community that slowly undoes a lot of the toxicity that means that groups of women, groups of people of color, groups of women of color feel the need to not interact with the community at all. And if even as the community becomes less toxic, they choose not to interact, that is a good and valid choice. Right. But I want the space to become less toxic so that people have the chance to opt in. And it's not an issue of this one thing being the thing that makes the culture less toxic. It's about a shift in the landscape. So ideally, hopefully, uh, someone at some point will be inspired by the work that I do with the group that I work with to start their own show and contribute to the continued like dismantling of toxicity. You know, it's it's a really, really long process. Um, and I wish that it weren't, but, you know, I I want to do what I can to chip away. Right. And while also recognizing that maybe the end of toxicity doesn't look like... Not being sure exactly what the end of toxicity looks like, because I probably have ingrained toxic behaviors that I'm still trying to work through. And again, that that article that Tanya DePass... Again, I'm really, really sorry, Tanya, if you hear this. I don't remember if you wrote it or you linked to it. And if you linked to it, I feel really bad that I don't remember who the author was. Of... The lack of interest in the broader space not necessarily being, um, it's just a we don't want it. Like, we don't need to be there. Right. I don't know. I I feel like I'm kind of uh, (laughs) talking in circles here, but at the end of the day, all you can do is recognize what privilege you have, what platform you have, and who you choose to collaborate with, and do your best to dismantle the toxicity that you can. And recognize that that helps change the face of the community, even if it is just tiny bit by tiny bit. Right. And I think a shift is happening in the community. But I do think that you're right. It is a process and it is a long process. And the shift that at least I'm seeing, maybe it's maybe it's influenced by the individuals who I'm choosing to surround myself with and who I'm choosing to interact with. But I think that when you say that the toxicity is, is what we need to remove is, I mean, it's many things, but that's the change that you want to see in the RPG community is the toxicity going away. And I see that in as we move forward, and I see that in in future groups, the more I see younger generations, young women talking about gaming, young men talking about gaming, who are 
saying that this is for everybody. This is for anybody. And I hear that when I hear people whose foray into the world of tabletop gaming, when it comes from exposure to podcasts or Twitch streams or um, university, college gaming groups, where it, it was a positive foray into this hobby that we love so much. Because the more positive entries into the uh, community, the more likely positive interactions will occur. Absolutely. The more likely we are to slowly exterminate the toxicity. Right. I would love someday to be able to go to some place like Gen Con and to choose to be in a game, to say, I'm interested in playing in this game, I'm going to show up, and to not just be scared or nervous on some level, that I'm going to need to walk away from the table because I have been made uncomfortable or that I feel like the group is engaging in hateful or unpleasant behavior. Um, and there are conventions where usually you can find that, but they're small. Right. A catacon is great, right? but it's very, very small and it's very, very curated. The face of the overall hobby, there's a lot of changing to do, and I cannot express how grateful I am that a lot of the actual play community, a lot of the podcasting community in RPGs is actively invested in making the space less toxic. Yes. <laughs> because it it does give me hope that people can show up to a game at a convention and not have to worry. Yeah, and I think too, um, you know, it it instills a certain level of of community pride in in what we're doing and what we're doing as our part of the RPG community. And it makes me really happy when I see podcasters from the smaller podcasts all the way to the bigger podcasts engaging in inclusive and, and diverse activities. And whether that's the way that they are tweeting, interacting on social media, or whether it's the way that they're interacting with their fans at cons or in person, I think that it helps normalize that the RPG community is for anyone, and it helps normalize that you can be whoever you are without fear, without shame, and you can unabashedly be you in this community. And I think that there's a lot of really fantastic podcasters who are are showing that by just being really true to who they are. And I see that in you. And it's, it's podcasters like you in the RPG community who are really doing this amazing work that I really do think is so impactful for listeners and fans because there's a lot of people who perhaps they don't even have a table where they can feel safe or where they can even play and and you're providing that that need you know you're filling that need for a group of people and that's just so important and it's also so wonderful so <laughs> thank you and i think that really ties back to the idea of vulnerability and i think that the reason that i care so much about toxicity is because of vulnerability I think that we get the most or 
there's a very important place, like I said before, in games where vulnerability allows you to explore yourself and your culture and your relationships to the people that you're playing with in ways that very few other things afford. And that can be so incredibly affirming. And I know that it has been for me like an active force that has changed my life in a significant way. And the last thing that I would want to see is anybody denied the opportunity to engage in a space where through that vulnerability and through that exploration and through that companionship, you know, someone might find that their life is improved or, um, you know, that they, they turn around a situation that was otherwise very, very difficult or seemed inescapable. Yes, I I think that's, yeah, that's wonderfully said. Because I, I think when we when we are vulnerable and we and when we do see how how this can impact who we are and who we choose to be, it, it can lead to really beautiful and wonderful things. And I think that uh, you know, through through making sure at least in our space, nobody is denied the opportunity to interact and to be a part of of this group we're showing what we want it to be we're showing what we want this community to be and and i can say honestly that this community has changed me in my life it's had a huge impact on not only who i am but how i think about things and how i approach things i have learned so much in the last 2 years of being really active in in the specifically in the online RPG community and RPG podcasting community that like I can honestly say it's it's changed me in ways I never expected and in really wonderful and beautiful ways that I think have helped make me be a better person and that's really valuable and it's it's not something to turn your nose up at I guess um because RPGs are so much more than just a nerdy game <laughs> Absolutely. And I could not agree with you more. The community has radically, radically changed a lot of things in my life in really, really wonderful ways. And the models of interaction and vulnerability that things like actual play can provide can be very, very helpful in improving that at your own tables, you know, when you're not in front of a microphone. And not only has my time with the community improved, the way that I relate to games and the way that I play games on and off the microphone, it's provided me with this really unbelievably supportive network of people and friends that I could not imagine not being in my life at this point. And to think that three years ago, I didn't know any of them. Um, it's kind of mind blowing. And it just goes to show what, uh, what a wonderful and beautiful space that it can be. So I'm just, this has been an amazing conversation, Quinn. <laughs> I agree, Tess. Thank you for sharing it with me. This has been delightful. I agree. Like, I feel like we have touched on everything that I wanted to touch on. This has been wonderful. I agree. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Before we quite wrap up is... Is there anything else, you know, you feel 
in your in your heart of hearts that uh, you haven't said yet about your podcast, about you, about RPGs? I actually think that I just want to say to anyone who's listening, especially folks who are listening that have a lot of privilege, but even those who don't, you know, do what you can. The next time that you are thinking about interacting with the gaming community or you're going to sit down to play a game or the next time you're putting together a group, do what you can to help dismantle the toxicity that you can because you're going to find that you're probably a lot more fulfilled in the things that you do when everyone that you're playing with can be vulnerable and can trust each other. So, you know, at the end of the day, try to be good and try to do good. That's perfect. Thank you so much, Quinn. Thank you so much, Tess. Support for the I Am Here podcast, presented by RPG Casts, is made possible by listeners like you. You can help keep the show going, get sweet excess bonus content for as little as $2 a month when you become a patron on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash rpgcasts to check out exclusive rewards for patrons and make your pledge. I Am Here is a production of RPG Casts. The intro and outro music was composed by Emily E. Mayo. Special thanks to Peter Grelly for designing the graphic art and assets for both RPG Casts and for I Am Here. Visit the website at IamHerePodcast.com for show notes, transcripts, and so much more. You can find more about RPG Casts by going to RPGCasts.com and follow on Twitter at, at RPG underscore Casts. Otherwise, thank you so much for listening to I Am Here. It means so much. <laughs>